And so that's what keeps the community from accepting estos muchachos que te hablan la mitad en inglés, la mitad en español, y tú no sabes qué diablo están diciendo. <laughs> right? And yeah. in the meantime, estos muchachos están luchando. And the reason why estos muchachos están luchando is because they are the ones who do love their community. That's right. And they are the ones that still van a luchar to become somebody is because they want to come back and change where they're at. Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of serving in and growing an ethnic church in the siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Pedilla and myself, Elizabeth Condefraser. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we ask the question, which language should take priority? How do we minister to English-dominant Hispanics? We want to raise the tension about language changes between American-born Hispanics and their native-born parents. But we also want to go beyond language to the worship and culture changes as well. English-dominant Hispanics simply don't worship or live in the same ways as their parents. So what do we do in light of that? At the end of the episode, we'll have Karen Figueroa, Dean of the Center for Hispanic Theological Education. Uh, she'll join us to talk to us about how she has dealt with the differences between her children and how she's raised them to connect to the Hispanic language. Elizabeth, ¿qué tal? Welcome back. Hey, how you doing? I am quite well. I am very ready. I am going, this podcast is going to air far later, but I'm going home for Christmas in about three days. And so I'm very excited to go home to Florida to be in the warm weather with family, enjoying myself, plenty of pernil. And so I'm looking forward of that, to that. I just came back from Florida from a place that they call Del Rico instead of Deltona. El Rico instead of Deltona. Del Rico. Del, Del Rico. Rico because so many Puerto Ricans have come to live there. That's hilarious. I didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, all the Puerto Ricans are still in Kissimmee, Orlando area, but they're everywhere now in Florida. We well, basically took over. They poured into Deltona. Orlando's too expensive, man. Orlando is too expensive. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Well, you're in Grand Rapids right now. I'm in Rockford, outside of Grand Rapids. How many inches of snow do you have right now? Not too many, um, but I'm having a hard time finding a pernil for Christmas. <laughs> There's not many people cooking pernil up in Rockford, Michigan. No, and then on top of that, when I go to the um, Spanish market, Um, I don't have the cuts of meat that Puerto Ricans like. I have the cuts of meat that Mexicans like. So oh, I got to, you know, have a little bit of a multicultural uh, conversation about my pernil. <laughs> you got to have a mestizo Christmas. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, hey, obviously this episode is going to come out way after Christmas, but now you know our plans for what we did for Christmas. <laughs> uh, hey, one of the things that's going to be interesting as we talk about today's episode, Lingua Franca, such an interesting title. For those of you that don't know, Lingua Franca is a phrase that means dominant language, dominant culture. It was what the Romans, uh, it's the phrase the Romans used to decide Latin was going to be the language of business at the time. And so 
lingua franca usually means the language of business. So just so you know what, what the title of the episode is referring to, because here in the second episode of the Mestizo podcast, we're going to deal with the main question that we always get asked as it relates to how we integrate one generation of ethnic church with another. And that is, what language should we be speaking, right? What tongue should we be using? What culture should take a priority? Let me give you a stat from Elizabeth and I's context, since ours is Hispanic, but tell you the truth, this is happening for Korean churches, Romanian churches, and everybody else. So it's not just us, but just so you know where we're coming from, 67% of the Latino community in the United States today were born here in the United States. That is, the grand majority of the Latinos you meet are not immigrants. They were born here. And odds are high that their uh, language use is mostly English. Uh, Elizabeth, you had a statistic. Out of that, out of that uh, large portion of the Latino community, think of a pyramid. And the bottom part of the pyramid, which is the, the largest part of the pyramid, are children between the ages of zero and five. And the next largest part of the pyramid are the ages of their parents. So this is not, you know, a temporary thing. This is going to be an ongoing trend in the Latino community that we are citizens, that we are here to stay, and that we are this whole other second generation peoples. And so uh, we're going to, we're creating our, our, our sense of culture, our Latinidad. Uh, a whole definition of that, and it's it's an exciting time. It is an exciting time. Nearly half of the U.S.-born Latinos are unmarried, and the average age among Latinos in the U.S. is 29. So that means we're, to Elizabeth's point, we're significantly younger. We are an unmarried group, which hints to you that there's a change in in the cultural values, right? Because to be 29 and Latino and unmarried back in the day, uh, you'd get called hamong, right? That's what the Puerto Ricans would call you. You're not married. There's something wrong with you. Uh, I am not married and up somewhere in that age range. And so you can imagine the kind of things that my family tells me. Uh, but it says to you that there's a shift. There's a kind of cultural shift that's happening. And we're trying to make sense of it. Again, we're not the only ones trying to make sense of it. I know of Korean churches that are going through the same struggle. I know of Romanian churches here in Chicago that are going through the same struggle. How do we integrate this new wave of hyphenated identity people, right? So that they're not just Romanian or just Puerto Rican, but that they're also American. How do we integrate them into the church? So let me ask the obvious question, Elizabeth, and we'll start our conversation there. In your opinion... Which language should take priority in the church? Well, let me say this about lingua franca. Lingua franca was not only the language of business. It was the language of power, of conquest. So when it comes to language in the church, if you're talking about lingua franca, you have to ask who has power in the church. So you and I are second generation, and we're sitting here talking about this, and we understand that the church is about bringing the gospel to someone's life and being able to communicate that gospel effectively. So I would say that you use the language in which the person feels that their soul is most comfortable, right? But if the first generation is who's pastoring, for them, holding on to that which is familiar is that which gives meaning 
and significance to their life, it helps them to hold on to everything that they lost in their life. And holding on to Spanish and continuing to do Spanish in the church is about their livelihood, the livelihood of their soul versus the livelihood of the soul of the second generation is to be able to continue to live in this society and to survive differently than their first generation is having to survive. It's a different uh, part of the coin of how we've had to survive a second generation. So the issue of language is about the issue of a dominant community, is about the issue of one community trying to, you know, one generation trying to hold on to what they lost as they survive, and the other generation trying to move forward in terms of how they survive. So it's about this power struggle in the relationship. That's a good word, because it's a perfect depiction of what's happening. There's a power dynamic to this and a power struggle indeed, because on one end, you have numbers on your side, right? There are more English-dominant Hispanics than there are Spanish-dominant Hispanics. So on one end, someone might say, well, power should be given to the English-dominant Hispanics. However, on the other end, you have the power dynamic of those who are in leadership. Those who are in leadership in churches tend to be the older generation, the first generation immigrant. And they are, to your point, trying to retain their traditional culture, their traditions and culture, right? I remember hearing a pastor once say, uh, Satanás habla inglés, and he forgets that Satanás also speaks Spanish. And so there's a kind of power dynamic and struggle related to these things. Uh, And I want to make another point as it relates to the power dynamic. It's also not just any kind of Spanish tradition that they're trying to keep. You know, when we think about la versión de la Biblia que se usa y se lee en la iglesia inmigrante latina, ¿cuál es? La Reina Valera, muchachos. La Reina Valera. And you know how hard it was for me that I grew up being taught to read and write in Spanish, even for me, a second-generation Puerto Rican, to penetrate the the language of La Reina Valera, for those of you that don't know, it's the equivalent of like a King James, but for most of us Spanish speakers, more complicated because that language has long been dead. Uh, but for us, it's a real struggle. And I think this affects the spirituality of the church and it affects that power dynamic because few of us can speak biblically in the language that's acceptable by that older generation. We just don't have the Reina, Reina Valera flow to us. And so I wonder, how do, we, how do we deal with these power differentials? Well, let's add to that um, the, the way in which we understand music, the way in which we understand expressions of um, of worship and how we use the arts for that, et cetera, et cetera, right? As different generations ebb and flow. And uh, the question is, how do you have a dialogue in which you, you know, you keep the two um, loving each other um, and making the space for one another um, as we're trying to uh, worship together, right? Because after all, familia is still very important for all of us. And if I choose to leave the uh, Latina church because it doesn't fulfill my needs, it's, in, it's, not in, it's not in English, it doesn't fulfill my worship needs, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm still leaving something behind that I cannot find in a different church. You know, I can't find uh, the cultural pieces that do speak to my soul. I can't find the sense of familia uh, everywhere. 
I can find the same cariño and the same expressions of cariño, right, which are embodied expressions. I can't find them someplace else. And so it's a hard, it's a hard thing to negotiate. Yeah, Elisa, you told me earlier, can you say for our audience, how many Latino Hispanics, young Hispanics are leaving traditionally Hispanic churches today? You know the percentage. It's about 25%. 25% are leaving. And if they are going to another church, that's a big if, if they're going to another church, they tend to go to anglicized white churches. Is that correct? Well, it depends on where you're located. A lot of urban youth are going to black churches. Oh, interesting. And those who are um, in surrounding type areas, they're moving more toward uh, the white churches, right? So it really depends. So there's an urban-rural dynamic? Yeah, or suburban dynamic. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I find it interesting that the Hispanic is kind of forced to identify with the two, the the black-white binary, right, of... That that also reflects to me a kind of power dynamic in itself, right? Where we we have to kind of cater to the two dominant groups that are already kind of in these discussions about multiculturalism and diversity and so forth and so on. Uh, you brought up the issue of music, the issue of worship styles, the the cultures of the congregation. Obviously, uh, the stereotype, which I think is a stereotype, and I, I want to avoid it. I want to provide more nuance than that. The stereotype of younger Christians is that they want, you know, all the bells and whistles. They want the big projector screens, the light show, the amazing music. I'm not sure that that is really fair and, and an accurate depiction of young people. But I do think there's something to say. There is something about uh, a distinction between how young people worship and older people. I do think there is something different there. And so I wonder, again, as we ask this question of, which should be dominant or which should we, we should lean into, uh, I wonder if we can speak to why it is that older Hispanics want to continue to worship in Spanish and sing in their old hymns. And and I'm, to hint, for the audience that doesn't know, to hint, Elizabeth, I'd love to hear, you've talked to me a little bit about the synagogue model before. Maybe you can introduce that here to help people understand why it is that some older Hispanics are saying, no, aquí se canta en español. We have to keep doing that. Well, let me go back real quick to lingua franca. Yes. We left that one dimension, and that is we have those who want to speak English. We have those who want to speak Spanish. But we live in a culture that's global. And so if we're going to talk about the language of power, the language of power is bilingualism. Preach. Okay. The language of power is bilingualism. And the language of power is multiculturalism because a multicultural person is someone who has cultural competencies because they can go in and out of different cultures. And when I, as a second generation person, can go in and out of, you know, my uh, the culture of my parents and grandparents and the dominant culture in which I live, I'm there's something that I'm doing uh, intuitively, that is cultural competency that other people crave and wish that they had. And it sort of comes real natural to me because it's how I've had to navigate my life, right? And we need to talk about that part so that we don't lose that. Okay, so I just want to kind of put that on the table right quick. That's good. And then when we're talking about um, every generation has always found a different way to express itself and therefore to express their faith. 
And I think every generation has the right to be able to do that. And it's okay that if you grew up with hymns, that became the language of your soul and your faith. And for those who are in a more technological uh, society, you know, the lights and this and that and the hype and all of that, that's part of that generation. And and the new hymns and so forth, if, if they have a good theology to them, right? If they're not the seven eleven songs, right? A, a, a song with seven words that you sing 11 times. If they're not the seven eleven songs <laughs> and they have a good theology, then they have a good theology. You know, it's, it's, it's how you're going to form your sense of belief. It's, it's what's going to nurture the way that you have to walk through uh, the difficulties of life. Uh, if it has biblical pieces to it, it's how you're going to be able to memorize uh, scripture. It's not going to be Reina Valera. It's not going to be, you know, the KGV either, but it's going to be um, the language of these hymns, of these uh, songs that we're singing, right? So, you know, there's there's those pieces and we need to honor those two pieces. Um, there are new songs today that seek, seek to honor that, where it starts with what the hymn was, and then there's a new version of that hymn with um, moving into a different uh, version of, of that song. So, you know, there are different ways. There are songs that can be translated into English and Spanish. People have done a lot of different things trying to keep the generations together at worship. Yeah, there are several models. Daniel Rodriguez, I'm going to recommend this book to our audience, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes of the podcast. But Daniel Rodriguez, he wrote a book called A Future for the Latino Church, Models for Multilingual, Multigenerational Hispanic Congregations. He does an excellent job of distilling several healthy models. He presents uh, maybe a dozen case studies of different churches that are doing excellent work in integrating and retaining those two generations. I recommend it to you. Uh, the other person I'd recommend that our audience look at is uh, Dr. Peter Cha. He is an Asian, uh, Korean-American man uh, who teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity Seminary. Uh, he did several case studies related to how healthy Korean churches have integrated the two generations. And so between Daniel Rodriguez and Peter Chai, you have some good resources. But let me just say, for those that are wondering what those guys might say, what those two scholars might write, uh, Daniel Rodriguez's answer to our question as to whether or not you should keep ministering in Spanish or in English or how you do it, his answer is quite shocking. Essentially, he argues that we should lean in and prioritize the ministry needs, the soul care needs of the younger generation, but that one of those needs implicit to that is their healthy connection to the older generation. And so it's a kind of complicated answer because while he says priority should be given to the English dominant Hispanic, he is not therefore saying that everything should be done in English because he, of course, wants them to stay healthily tethered to the Hispanic community. He wants them tethered to abuela and abuelo, right? And uh, so I found his answer really, really compelling in that regard. Uh, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I do want to say uh, that part of what he highlights is several pastors who transitioned to a kind of emeritus status. They passed power down to a younger leader who could speak both languages well who could be a kind of bridge person. We're going to talk a little bit here with Karen Figueroa in a moment about yeah, it being interstitial, but someone who could be a bridge person between the two cultures. They pass power down to that person 
or they learned English themselves. One of my favorite stories in the book is of a pastor who struggled to learn English. And every Sunday at the church, he would preach in terrible English, but he would preach in English for his congregation to highlight for the older generation, this kind of learning can be done. It's important. And I care about your young people too. And it was interesting to see how the church flourished because then when a younger pastor took over, that pastor didn't speak Spanish. So that pastor struggled to preach in Spanish and did the same thing. Y hablaba un español así matado, as we say, right? And so uh, we talk about these kind of passings of power, distributing power, so that the two generations can stay well connected. And I thought that that was really compelling from him. One of the things that I know as a Christian educator is that in a country where we separate the generations, that country becomes more secularized. In a country where we keep the generations together, that uh, country becomes much more religious. Uh, whatever the religion is, people are able to pass to transmit uh, their religion from one generation to another. And that goes not only with um, how it is, you know, what languages we use and so on and so forth, but are our children with us when we worship or do we put them out, you know, on the side uh, to do something else because they bother us because they're too young or what have you. Right. Um, so we have to, we have to take this beyond because part of what give that, that example that you used of the pastor passing power down, part of how you do that is to mentor. It's not, well, okay, now you're the pastor, right? That's, that's, that's power, but that's not authority. The way that you give authority to a new generation is that you mentor them. And that means that we're passing down wisdom. There's tacit knowledge that's being passed down. So you don't just put somebody in a position. You have to pass down a wisdom for how it is that we create this web of relationships. So the mentoring piece is a very important piece. And one thing that I remember that my church did is that they identified in us as children, our gifts. And I was very early on mentored to be a pastor. Uh, they let me preach at the age of nine to the 11-year-olds. <clears throat> they taught me how to serve communion. They taught me how to wash my hands and say a prayer for those who were going to receive the communion. And then they let me, you know, uh, push the little pump and put the juice into the little glasses. I was seven years old when I did that. <laughs> so this is not only about, hey, when I get to be you know, 20 or whatever, they're gonna let me be on committees and whatnot. This is about what we do all the way. And this way, everybody has meaning and purpose in what they're doing. Okay? So otherwise we see each other as separate from one another and we only see our differences. We don't see how it is that we have something to give to one another. Yeah, quick plug. Next episode, you're going to hear from Obispo Jose Garcia. He's going to talk about how his denomination has explicitly worked hard to transition power in a healthy way, as Elizabeth has been talking about, a healthy way from one generation of pastors to the next, such that pastors that are millennials, millennials have had real mentorship to, to support them as church planters and pastors ministering to their ethnic churches. And so you'll hear about that next episode as well. One thing I want to talk about, Elizabeth, because I found out once that we are on two sides of this uh, 
we're both on surprising sides of this, actually. Uh, I remember when we first decided we were going to record this podcast, I asked you, uh, related to this question, whether or not we should be ministering in Spanish or English. And one of the things that you told me was that for many Hispanic pastors, they view the church as a kind of synagogue. So you told me the story, right? And I'll tell it for the audience. You told me the story about how Israel in the scriptures, Israel was in exile. They were in a foreign land, in a foreign country. And the synagogue wasn't just for their discipleship and formation uh, in terms of their spiritual lives, but it was also as a way of helping to minister to them or, or, or bridge them to their Israelite identity so that they retained being Israelites. And you talked about how for many Hispanic pastors, they continue to perceive the church as a kind of synagogue. Can you tell me more about that image and, and how pastors do that practically? Yeah, well, let's go real quick to, to the exile and what it did so that people totally understand what it is that we're trying to do. So in the exile, what happens is that you are ripped away from your land, right? So the, the exile begins when you can no longer be on your land and you can't own anything, etc. And it tells you that you're nobody in the conqueror's land. And the Babylonians were the ones who brought the people into exile. And what the Babylonians particularly were good at was that they separated you. So they separated the Israelites into a lot of different countries that the, Babyl that the Babylonians were in control of. So that they turned you into minorities. And then... They um, also stripped you of your religion. <clears throat> so remember that the people of Israel had the temple. And in that time, every country that had power had a God. And they marched into battle with their God. And when you came into their city, you saw on the one side, you saw the temple to their God, which gave the, the king power. And then you saw the, the, the um, mansion of the king where his throne was, etc., etc. <clears throat> when the people of Israel are ripped away from their land and their temple is burned, they now have no a place. A place of worship is important. They have no place for where they come to gather for God. So the priest actually became irrelevant. Okay? And, the, and, and so how do you create a place to continue your religious practice, which is a part of your identity? So what they did was, I want to make a quick interruption. So sorry. Just as a reminder, as she continues to tell the story, remember, she's overlaying this over the Hispanic identity. Many Hispanics who show up to the United States are already tied to a Christian tradition. We sometimes forget that. So, okay, continue. Sorry, I interrupted you. Right. So finding a place to continue that piece is important, right? And remember that Worship is, especially today, one of the few things that we still do as a body. It's a corporate piece that we do. Western culture is all about the individual, but Latinos have always been about the corporate piece. We are community. And that's one of the few places where that can take place. So when the Israelites are disconnected from that, it's at the prophet's house that they begin to try to make sense of this whole traumatic experience and to try to figure out how do we continue to be the people that we are. And they have prayer meetings, etc. Somewhere along the way, the synagogue emerges. And the synagogue is the place where they can continue to um, practice their religious practices 
tell that religious story. It's the place where they continue to read their sacred text, the scriptures. <clears throat> it's the place where they continue then to maintain their language because the sacred text is in Spanish. It's in the Reina Valera. You know, I mean, it's, it's in Hebrew, right? Yep. For us, it's in the Reina Valera. That's right. And so to, to be able to worship um, in the synagogue, you have to be able to read that text. And this is where the, uh, today you have the bar mitzvah and the bas mitzvah. And people have to know the Hebrew and they have to, as a part of that ritual, they have to be able to read in the Hebrew. It's, and that's a whole other alphabet, et cetera, et cetera. So this becomes important. Here in the United States, a similar piece, uh, the Orthodox Church has done that, particularly the Greeks, because their liturgy tends to be in the Orthodox Church, tends to maintain their liturgy in their original language. So people have to, again, send their kids to what's called Sabbath school or to, you know, Saturdays. Um, instead of having Sunday school, they have Saturday school. And the kids go there to learn the language. Okay. Why? So that they can be a part of community. So the synagogue has done that. But I, I, I would want to say more about the role of the synagogue. But I think that in a, in a future episode, we're going to talk about uh, the possibilities that we have of creating synagogue through our Bible institutes. And so it's a whole other place for us to be. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think what that highlights is the motivation behind pastors who are committed to La Reina Valera, who are committed to Spanish-speaking services only, right? And so I think that highlights what what motivates that interest. And And I got to be honest, I'm sympathetic to that interest. I'm sympathetic to pastors who want to pass on their traditions to the younger generation because I do think that in not passing on those traditions, uh, many Hispanics, for reasons that are entirely understandable, as they were trying to get their children to benefit from their place here in the U.S., they, uh, they didn't teach their children the language, they didn't teach them their traditions because they were so worried about making sure that they were Hispanic. And I understand that. Familia! It's your host, Emanuel Padilla, with a quick reminder. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno del Mestizo podcast. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes, or you can call 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. We'll be joined for the second part of our conversation by Karen Figueroa. Karen is from El Salvador. She is currently dean of El Centro Hispano de Estudios Teológicos, better known as CHET, located in Compton, California. Chet has been training the Latinoa community for 30 years, recently graduating over 100 new students. Karen is committed to serving the underserved, those who don't have access to affordable theological education. She is a mother of three teenagers, and we'll hear about her struggles to shape their identity. Here's Karen talking about language, culture, and motherhood. Uh, Karen, welcome to the discussion. Uh, Elizabeth and I have been... Uh, working already, as you can, you probably heard us already working the gears, trying to make sense of uh, what it means to be a Latino community together, what it means to be a Latino church together, when we have differences of language, differences of culture, not just entre 
Latino Mexicano, Latino Puerto Ricano, Dominicano, and so forth, but even between the generations among those groups. So you've got Latinos que son nacidos acá, en los Estados Unidos, malo Latinos que vienen de su, de su nación original. So you have these tensions that have been rising. Uh, we've talked to you about this. You're a friend of ours. You've been with us in conversations about this often. And so we talked to you about your experience as a mom, and I was hoping that you could, one, give us an introduction of what you do at your center because you're doing training with some of those generations that are picking up on some of this. But then we'll ask questions and we'd love for you to talk not just as an expert, but also as as a mom who's wrestling with this personally. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, as a dean, um, I'm grateful to be here uh, serving our community, hearing the people's stories. It's not just about the academics. It's about education in general and, and how you, you know, everything that you live around it affects your life. And um, as a mom, yeah, it's, I have three uh, teenagers, almost an adult. I have a 19-year-old boy and 16-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. And um, they are, they fully, they say that they are fully Salvadorian because both my husband and I are Salvadorian. So full blood is Salvadorian, even though they were all born here. So, Well, good. I'm glad they say that. <laughs> I'm glad they think they're full Salvadorians. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so it's been fun, um, you know, being their mom, but also um, teaching them how to, you know, continue edu- pursuing education and, and, and the mission of God in everything that they do. What are some of their plans for the future? Your, your three children. Well, currently, my 19-year-old is uh, finishing up his second year of college. He um, is doing in computer engineering, and he's actually uh, just about to be transferred to a Cal State um, University. And um, yeah, and then my other son, he uh, will pursue um, mechanical engineering. And my daughter uh, loves to do, um, she's, a, she's a performer, she's an artist at home, and so she will pursue um, that. In high school, actually, next year she's going to high school. So it's pretty, pretty. It's amazing that I have a, my baby. It's a, it will be a high schooler next next year. So that's fantastic. Well, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, and I was wondering if you would be willing to share, is I know that you and your husband at at one point not long ago switched churches so that the church that you would be attending and serving at would be a church that could minister to your children. Uh, talk to us about why you made that choice and what it was about this new church that you thought made it fit the 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 ideal uh, caricature, the ideal character for your children. Yeah, well, it's interesting because as a pastor's kid, you know, I only grew, I grew up in one church, which was my dad's church, right? I mean, everywhere we went, it was just so the fact of even just thinking of changing churches was not something that we would have considered a while back. Uh, but being parents, um, it, you know, every, when you're a parent, it pushes you out of your limits, out of your own comfort zones, and, and you got to do it because they need it. And as parents, we have, tri- we have strived to provide to, for them the, not just the social, the emotional and physical and spiritual growth in our home, um, but they also need that community outside of us, right, to grow into what God has called them to be, no matter what they decide to do in life. And um, unfortunately, there was this, there's like a stall, like una, una pared, you know, that, that um, the first generation Latino churches have. And it's that um, from my own experience in serving the Latino church, when I, I had, I have experience in teaching middle schoolers. 
And um, I was told that I couldn't do it in English because they had to speak Spanish, right? And uh, so, you know, um, I respected that. But then as you become a parent, you're like, well, you know, um, they speak Spanish, but their mother tongue, it's, it's English. And when they want to talk about their problems, their struggles, their um, questions, I think that they feel more comfortable in, in English. And so I think that that was really the language barrier was exactly what uh, pushed us out or, de- or we decided to pursue something different. And uh, we found this multicultural church that um, served them well. And uh, both boys got baptized the first year they went. They experienced camp. They experienced activities outside of church, um, life in general. And um, I think it's now that we are, we as parents are feeling like, well, I need my cantos en español. You know, necesito hablar, adorar al Señor en español. So it's been interesting to transition into that. And uh, uh, we both speak English, my husband and I, and, you know, um, but there's still something within us that we miss. And so uh, we've been having those conversations with them as well because um, they're adult enough or, young, or old enough for them to understand what we need also as parents. And, and, you know, and I think that that's been the conversation lately. Well, Karen, I, I, re- I really like your comments. Um, I'm second generation <clears throat> and my kids are third generation, but also as a second generation, part of what takes place in our lives sometimes is that um, we marry outside of the Latina community, right? So my husband's African-American. <clears throat> my kids uh, learned Spanish with me because, you know, I was a bilingual teacher. So early on, I made the uh, decision that I was going to be teaching them Spanish and speaking to them mainly in Spanish. So it was a little bit more than just uh, culture. They had to belong to three different cultures, right? They had the dominant culture, they had the Latina culture, you know, mommy was all about that. And then, you know, daddy was all about being African-American. And um, it was a sense of identity, right? And we develop our identity depending on the communities that we are a part of. So what I see in what you say is not only a cultural piece, but it's also a class piece, right? Your kids are going into a culture of uh, becoming professionals and so on and so forth. And we don't always uh, find that in the uh, first generation community because of the uh, barriers uh, of coming into this country. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's nothing that is wrong with the community. It's just about uh, the journey and how that takes place. But now your kids are becoming adults. And as they become adults and you as parents are adults, um, the relationship between parents and their new adult children changes, right? There's a shift. And now that we are all adults, now the conversation is different about how we deal with our particular religious needs, the needs of our soul, right? Um, your soul speaks a little more Spanish. Your soul needs a community that expresses itself a little bit different. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's those two pieces uh, taking place. It'll be interesting to see how that, you know, plays out. But it just is coming to a different uh, place in the relationship um, with you as parents, with your adult children as well. Yeah, definitely. The, the topics of conversations are totally different. Questions that I wish that I could have asked my parents. Um, they're asking them right now <laughs> in a totally different way, but they sure are. And they're questions not only about life, but they're also uh, theological questions, right? Say a little bit more about that. Well, just uh, 
two weeks ago, we were driving home from, from, from work and uh, my son, well, actually we had a blood drive here at Chet and uh, my son came to donate blood in my husband and um, just blurted out. So mom, what do you think about politics and religion? Whoa, <laughs> I was like, well, <laughs> let me, déjame masticar eso un ratito, por favor, ¿verdad? <laughs> um, and then, you know, then we come the differences of how I think politically and how my husband thinks politically and, and in religion and how, you know, everything. So, um, yeah, it ended up being a good conversation, but uh, um, it has definitely enhanced our relationship. And I'm glad that our, our kids have that open space. I believe that part of me growing up was practically that. I had my parents, but I didn't feel like I had that open space to really ask those questions because if I had a question outside of church, sometimes it was not that welcomed. Karen, uh, me parece muy interesante. I find it really interesting that your kids are, are forming, they're taking shape, they're taking identity shape and cultural shape in a multicultural context. Uh, I wonder... Your experience, the one that you talked about, about the middle school class that you wanted to teach it in English and you were told not to, right? Uh, there's a similar kind of enculturation that happens in a multicultural context, right? Where they're all able to speak English and therefore can express themselves freely. But I wonder, how are they getting, how are your children and maybe those others who are a part of the multicultural church, how are they getting reconnected to some of their other roots, right? So how are they getting connected to uh, their Salvadoreñonism, right? Like how, how are they doing that? Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Well, actually, in the, in the church, um, when I attended one of the first uh, assemblies or, or congregational uh, meetings, um, the demographic of the church is like 75% Latinos. Uh, but most of them are second, third generation. So but everything is in English, everything. And uh, what we have, it's a life group that, uh, you know, that's specifically for the Latino community. And um, and in and, and talking to them, to the Latino community, you know, where they feel that they kind of like invaded space to, to a certain extent, um, you know, that becomes a struggle for them because not only is the language barrier, but also like um, Elizabeth mentioned, it was even in the class, you know, uh, they're hardworking and uh, labor working. And so that most of the Latinos of the demographic of the church, the 70, 75%, maybe 70%, it's a pro professional. You know, they work in the city. They work, uh, they have, you know, um, professors. They, they're doctors. And, and so I think the, the richness that the first generation Latino comes is, is that sense of community. It's the sense of belonging. And, and that happens in meals. That happens after the church. That happens outside of the actual worship service, you know, because we can include a Spanish song and, and, and make them feel welcomed. But then it goes beyond that. You know, I, I could sometimes at the beginning it was really hard to see how after church when we had, you know, a little pan con cafe or whatever, or, you know, something like that, you could see the separation. You could see the, the different um, uh, groups being together. And so how, how, did, how did that happen? Um, it's just having people that are catalysts and people that are bridge builders, people that um, will do things outside of the church. So we have a, a family center. And I think that has been key to, to its community work. 
you know, it, it goes beyond the, the, the religious part. It's, it's just being present, the ministry of presence. You know, when, when you have a, a kid in court and that you, that's having, you know, drug problems and the community comes together. So um, I think that it's, it's by doing life together where people connect. I think that's really key for the, um, then God being in their midst, you know, but it's, it's really the community um, in, in, in the everyday life. Yeah, I think that's helpful to suggest that their formation is happening communally. It's happening in the collective of that congregation. I imagine that it's also happening by their few or, or maybe more involved interactions at Chet. Uh, at the school at Chet, are you guys teaching in English, Spanish, or both? Well, we uh, mostly do it in Spanish. All of our materials are in Spanish, uh, except in our Bachelor in Christian Ministry, we do incorporate um, some English um, readings. Uh, for our second and third generation students, most of our professors are bilingual. And so the class will still be taught in Spanish. Everything, will, the discussion, it helps them. You know, it, for them, it's a privilege to come and practice and just you know, chat with their, with their um, um, classmates. But they're, they're, when they need to turn in homework, they're allowed to turn it in in English. And that has helped them tremendously because, yeah, you know, they express themselves in, in that sense. Um, but, but it helps, oh, but I mean, like, again, the community, the, the first generation Latino, you know, um, you're still, it's, it's wonderful to see parents and, and kids in the same classroom interacting with each other. And those generational gaps are just completely broken. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great place to be. So, but yeah, that would be my best answer, mostly Spanish. Um, and in fact, we have one professor who was a missionary um, he speaks better Spanish than most. He, he grew up in Costa, uh, Costa Rica and, and, and Mexico. And it's fun to see him teach grammar sometimes. And he's like, I cannot see these type of mistakes in your work, you know, and he's talking to first generation Latinos, you know. And so, uh, but it's, it's that blend of that safe space, you know, that I think students get, um, uh, they learn from experience, listening to each other. Um, and just breaking those barriers of, of being scared because most people, you know, when you learn a new language, it's being scared, you know, and just getting off that fear, it's, it's difficult enough. Yeah. So. Can I go back to something that you were saying? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Um, when it comes to politics and religion, a lot of it is, um, is colored by our color. Yeah. Right. It's colored by our culture, by, you know, where we came from, our sensitivities that, you know, are a part of that. Right. You uh, are an immigrant, um, your parents. And so, you know, what it, what it what that journey meant to you and so on and so forth. Um, your kids are a generation removed from that reality. They are maybe a part of um a church where uh, people are also removed from that reality, that's going to color politics, yeah. right? Uh, that's, and that's, and that's going to color then uh, what we preach about or don't preach about. Yeah. Um, therefore what we uh, make people aware of or not, mm-hmm. uh, how we um, make, how we open up the scriptures to people, what parts we open up or don't open up. Uh, what are you finding in that experience, right? So on the one side, it's good that they can uh, express themselves in English, that they can find, you know, in terms of class and, you know, being professionals, mm-hmm. this is where their lives are going. But then um, 
the sense of community that you spoke about, which, you know, you talk to how it is that people are trying to make up for that. But then there's, there's, a, there's another kind of connection, right? Connecting to, to the suffering of people. How does that happen? And, and how do you, in that conversation of politics and theology, you know, how, what do you do to, to open that up so that those pieces that they're uh, not directly in contact with, mm-hmm. that they still have the sensitivity? What are you doing with that? Well, personally, um, I love to tell stories. And I'm, an, I'm, I'm a storyteller. And I believe that it, it's in those stories that you pass on so much wisdom and the suffering and the celebration. And, and if as a church, we don't have the time to do that in our preaching, in our gatherings, in our prayer life, you know, because we can, we can pray for whoever's the president, but what are we doing, you know, outside of, of that? You know, and that goes with everything, right? I mean, everybody's, when somebody's sick and they ask you to pray, but, and you pray, but you can do more than that. You know, you can, you can activate your faith beyond that. Um, so for me personally, storytelling, one of the things that I've been discovering lately, uh, being a Salvadorian is, um, and because I grew up in a very, in a Protestant, very conservative um, denomination, I've been reading about my own history of me, of, of the Salvadorians and how, you know, um, Monsignor Arnulfo Romero, what he did for the church. I mean, for my dad, that's total like, uh, you're going the wrong way, girl. But, <laughs> but I just feel this need because you, go, you, you talked about identity, you know, and when I say that I'm a Salvadorian, I need to know more than just knowing that I was born there, you know, and knowing the most... More than pupusas, right? Yeah, exactly, right? Um, yeah, exactly. So... I was just about to bring up pupusas as well. I was just about to bring them up. Yeah, Karen doesn't have pupusa identity. Go ahead. <laughs> well, but I do make some good ones. <laughs> cooking has been what cooking is is my de-stressor. So ah, um, pues me debe una, ¿sabes? <laughs> Exactamente. Cuentados, cuentados. <laughs> um, that's what my kids is, that they love knowing that they're a Salvadorian because they, they know all the Salvadorian dishes and stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a very curious person, girl. I love to, I like to learn. And so when, within my, um, in growing up, I was in a glass, you know, or, or uh, and I just felt that there was something else out there. I mean, um, honestly, I did not grow up liking history at all. But when I studied church history, that was just a revelation for me. It was just like a horizon opened for me to know where we come from. And, and that's really important for me as a family as well. So my family has always talked about, you know, because we come from generations of pastors. But there was so much messiness that I would see within that. And I'm like, why is that? And why don't we talk about it? So um, identity for me has been crucial in that finding. But yeah, definitely, um, it's it's been. I think storytelling for me. There's, I mean, the the the, dif- the distance between one person and another one is really a story, you know. And just um, listening to where they came from, and sometimes you know you judge right away when they behave a certain way. But you know, where do they come from? I live in. I live close to Watts at the moment, and uh, there could be many stories that I could tell you, you know, but. 
Um, we see a lot of homelessness and a lot of drug addicts in the street, but, you know, what's their story? You know, now I feel this compassion, you know, not just to invite them to the church, but for me to step out of the church and do something about that. So I think for, for my kids, that has been key, um, you know, little things, you know. So we have taken this, um, my son, you know, when, of course, Christmas is coming and they always ask for gifts, right? And so as, as kids, they would have their lists. One day I told my husband, we need to stop doing that, you know, because it's not about what they want. You know, I, I think that it goes beyond um, the gifts and the openings of the gifts. And um, we prayed a lot for one of my kids because he would always ask for expensive gifts. And we're like, you know, we, we, don't, we want this to be, you know, um, to change that. Hey, if you're going to ask, ask big. Right. <laughs> um, and so um, my husband's really special about that. So he would put also you know, a budget in, in what they would have. And so um, and he would always have one gift because his gift was always expensive. Right. And so one day we just had a conversation with him because he didn't complain. He said, well, how come my brother, and my sister get a lot of gifts and I don't? And I said, well, you know, because the amount that you're asking is so much. Excuse me. But anyway, what I want to get to is that it was within that year when he was 13 to turn 14 um, that something shift. And it was precisely when we moved churches um, and, and the fact of, of serving the community. And the year after, um, he, when we asked, you know, what were you going for Christmas? He said, well, mom, I think that this year I want um, to buy toiletries and just little things so we can go out and give out to the homeless. And it was one of those moments that, you know, as a mom, you're like, okay, Jesus, <laughs> you know, this is the best gift for me. Um, and so ever since we've done that as a family, we, you know, we don't exchange gifts anymore. We try to, you know, we serve the community in different ways, but not just, of course, in Christmas. Um, but he especially, I, I feel that he has that pastoral heart too. Well, you know, as, as shifting from what you are told to believe, but then also to what God reveals to you within, you know, your grow, own growth and your own faith journey. God, and I'm curious, uh, have your children, have you taken them to El Salvador? Have they, have they made that, that trip? Uh, because storytelling, uh, just to uh, give some context for why I asked the question, uh, your comments about storytelling reminded me of Mario Vargas Llosa's book, El Hablador, uh, an excellent book where he essentially talks about, it's about Peru, so it's a little different. Uh, but in it, he talks about the importance of storytelling as essentially it's the heart of the, the culture and the heart of the people, the storytelling. But part of the storytelling uh, can be amplified by seeing the places, hearing the sounds, tasting the pupusas, as we joked about earlier, right? I mean, part of it, part of knowing thyself is having those deepened, layered experiences, right? So have they gone and and... And well, I'll ask just that first. Have they gone to El Salvador and how was that helpful in telling the story? Yeah, um, when they were kids, they were in different schools. So it was difficult to take a, a family trip. And in fact, um, it was probably for the best because they were too small to really understand. And so um, five years ago or six years ago, we decided to go and uh, we intentionally we went to the church where I grew up. And uh, we went to the church where my husband grew up and in the places as well. And um, yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they identify with everything. And, and one thing we did do different is that we had our own schedule. We had always gone on vacation, but, you know, always just to visit the family and go out and, and have fun. But this was an intentional trip of, yeah, of storytelling. And we did, 
we did tell so many stories. Um, and it was actually a ble- more of the blessing for us even because we visited places that we had never visited. And so we, we tried to do that. And that was the intention of doing it in places that we had gr- grown up as, you know, as kids, but then also to make new experiences with them. So we visited, you know, Las Rinas and places that we as children never had access to even in our own country mm. because of our own financial conditions. And so, and the country itself being in, in chaotic, you know, chaotic and war and everything. So, um, so yeah, definitely that changed. Uh, they met family they had never met, um, you know, in just, yeah, seeing the raw, the rawness, you know, where we grew up. And, you know, I always tell them, you know, you guys grew up, you know, from in the hospital. I, 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 you know, you know, you were born in a hospital. We picked you up in a car, in a car seat and all secured. And um, I was born in, in, in my parents' house with a med- midwife, with, animals around and we had to go in horse to the nearest town to get my shots and you know things that they had never never experienced they will never experience but yes definitely it made a huge impact on them um an understanding and even in our immigrant stories um that elizabeth mentioned i have a very you know my parent my dad was called to pastor a church so you know we we came in a plane you know to a um Una casa mueblada, you know, with everything that we needed. Uh, my husband didn't. And so he left when the country when he was 16 and got jailed three days in Mexico and then, you know, um, sent back. And then he came back again when he was 17. So, yeah, we, we definitely have different, even within our own nuclear family, we have so many different stories to tell. So we have definitely managed to, to do that. And every, and every time they have questions, you know, we, or, or concerns or um, they know that, that we have a story to tell. So my kids are always like, mom, you should write a book. And I'm like, well, someday. <laughs> and maybe you should. I, I wonder. I, I've, I've wrestled with, I, I had some students. I sat about a month ago, I sat in the dining hall with students here at Moody. Now, obviously here at Moody, we only teach one course a semester in Spanish. Everything else is in en- English. And I was sitting with three, this time Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricanos, were sitting in the dining hall. And the students looked at me and they said, we don't really know our traditions. And Elizabeth and I were commenting earlier that uh, for many of our students, there is an inferiority complex such that they imagine that their stories are somehow lesser, that their theologians are somehow lesser. Uh, I had a student come and tell me in my office not too long ago that he just assumed if it had a Spanish name on it that it couldn't be good theology. And so, so I wonder, as someone who's passionate about storytelling and passionate about education, how do you couple those things together at Chet to to challenge that inferiority complex and to bring value to uh, el hablar español y, y, y teología de, de nuestra gente en ese sentido? Yeah, um, I think I have been here at Chet for 20 years, 10, um, the last 12 full time and uh, as an executive assistant to the president and more, most recently as a dean. And I can honestly tell you that um, at the very beginning, it was, it was a job but as God was calling me and my vocation, it, it, it became um, a, a vocation of just listening to people's stories and sharing my stories. And so my pastoral heart just definitely stirred up 
um, I was really reluctant giving my experience um, and being a woman because that I, I was not modeled for a woman to pastor, to preach, to teach others. Um, and so that totally shifted in me here in Chet, most, most specifically. Um, it made a huge difference to have mentors that believed in me and uh, people that surrounded me. And so I believe that um, the experiences that you go through, because as a Christian all my life, I thought, what's going to be my testimony? You know, when I have been a good kid, a, 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 an obedient child, and I've, I know um, my verses and I know my Bible. But when I understood of the informal and the formal education and how that totally, it's, it's necessary. It's, it's necessary to have both. Um, because most of my professors that I've been uh, with and they have taught me, they have been that. They have experienced God, not just known about God. And I think that makes a difference in when you do the formal education. When a professor is not accessible, to share of their lives and other stories of what God has done through them and not just teach um, the, the, you know, the theory or the theology um, that it's, it's, it totally makes a difference. And so I think that accessibility to people um, to validate their stories, to validate their situation totally makes a difference in the classroom. You know, what you have said has some very powerful pieces that we need to look at for just a moment. The whole piece of uh, maintaining story, of telling the story, of um, finding the artifacts that have to do with the story. So, you know, going back to our countries is not only about uh, feeling, getting a sense of the feel of being in that place, right? Which is very different and, and truly understanding because you're experiencing, right? <laughs> but it's also um, about the artifacts, the things that we can connect to that can trigger those stories again for us, right? Um, before I visited Puerto Rico, my mother told us <clears throat> the story of what it was to be in Puerto Rico. And for every story that she had, she had an artifact that she would um, have, that she would pull up and she would say, mira nena, esto es, and she would tell us what it was. And then she would, you know, begin to, to tell us. And then there's another story uh, that you've mentioned. So there's the cultural story, but then there is also the story of faith, right? The testimonials, the who we were in church, you know, of how that came about, if we weren't in church, how we came, uh, what we're living now. So there's, there's the cultural story, right? The story of origin of our family. There is the um, testimony, which is the story of faith. The origin of our family uh, story is connected then to our country, right? But then there's the biblical story. And when we connect those three, there's the doing of theology. And our story as Latinos, what we have is that we have been, when we became Protestants in Latin America, they disconnected us from our true faith stories, right? They disconnected us from where we really came from. We became, you know, we, we, we became Catholics. For those who were indigenous peoples, they tried to disconnect them from that. And so all of those pieces, right? Um, they tried to disconnect us from our culture because there were things in our culture that were then called demonic and so forth. So that very concern, those of us who were conservative, right? Those were the pieces. And so we were disconnected. 
And those were disconnections when in reality, Jesus comes to connect, yes, to create the relational, right? And that's what you talked about is that relationship, you know, developing relationships is deep and many and very meaningful. And but what you're doing is that you're blending the many different stories to create a new safe space. And that new safe space is where we can recreate ourselves by putting together all these pieces of story. And that's a redemptive space, right? That's a redemptive. And right now what I'm doing in this reflection is I'm doing my own theology here for a moment (laughs) and sharing it with you, right? You are blowing my mind. Keep going. (laughs) Our mind, yes. (laughs) So, So we now have, you know, we have our cultural story connected to our country connected to our own, you know, story of origin. We have, we're connecting uh, with our land. Land, place, space is important. When we're disconnected from that, right, we feel uh, it's, it's embodiment, right? The land is a part of our body. So this is disembodiment, what we have been feeling. And then we're, we are, we have our faith story and we have to reconnect our faith story with who we really are as as people. That's what this season is about. Uh, Christ connecting with our humanity. And then that's the biblical piece. So the making meaning between all of these spaces is what I believe should be what, how we should do theology among the different generations. And we can't do that theology separated from each other. So while in our, in our um, span of identity, we can be in different communities at different points, depending on the need that we have at that point, right? So sometimes we need to be where there's more English or, you know, the, the class piece or the professor, all of the things that we have just said. But at a certain point, we need to connect all of these different pieces so that in that space, and I think that that's what Chet is doing, and people should know that Chet is one of the um, biggest Bible institutes that we have and a very viable place for doing um, ed- theological education. And when you create that community, you said just a few moments ago that we activate our faith beyond just the story because the story captures the suffering. And that is a way of opening up our compassion, our hearts of compassion, which is so important for opening up our sense of calling and the direction of our calling. And I see Chet as a space, a theological Latino space, where all of this is taking place, right? And for me, that's important because where we get our theological education is going to have to keep in mind how these pieces of of the stories connect. This this is amazing. I don't even know who to ask my question to, so I'll pose it to both of you because I, I've turned into a student. I've lost sense of my outline. So uh, one of the things that, that I want to bring up, uh, as Elizabeth has, has distilled for us the connections between story, community, and land, which are kind of three key spheres of culture, uh, We haven't always created safe spaces for young Hispanics, especially those born here in the States. Uh, I know just speaking of stories, I'll speak of of my own for a bit. 
the first time que yo visité a Puerto Rico, the first time I went to Puerto Rico, my family, so this is not outsiders, these are my family, would introduce me to others as, oh, ese es Ricky, mi primo de afuera. He's Ricky, the cousin from outside, right? And so they, they made sure to, to, to distinguish me as not from the island, right? And not from this land or space, right? And so it, it, it created a kind of separation. And I think that this happens a lot, uh, not, just, not just in terms of cultural identity, but as Elizabeth pointed out, this, this has a biblical connection or a story to a, a connection to a biblical story in that many Hispanics perceive the U.S., as as Egypt, as Babylon, right? Where they're they're forced to go there because they're in the the desert or in the famine of their own country, right? And so uh, because of that, I think there's a, a perception of those Latinos who are born here, right? Elizabeth one time talked to me about uh, the synagogue experience, and I'll let you bring up those pieces, Elizabeth, as you talked about the synagogues being to help those who were born in the exiled places, uh, help to get them enculturated. I don't, I don't want to get to that point. The point I want to make is that we haven't always created spaces like Chet. Chet is a bit of an exception. God, uh, and even in your story, you brought up the more the more normal experience, which is that Hispa- young Hispanics are often told, aquí se habla español, right? Aquí en la escuela dominical, la clase se da en español. Los servicios se predican en español. Uh, los cánticos se cantan los himnos de nosotros, right? And so they're, they're constantly reminded, you're either going to do this or you're not going to be of us. I read this quote to Elizabeth earlier, and I and I want to get a reaction maybe from both of you, and maybe you guys can speak to this, but uh, there's a young Hispanic millennial, She she's an influencer online, she wrote this, she said, shout out to my Latinx people that are struggling with learning Spanish every day, while an entire community criticizes your accent and tells you you're not, quote, Latin enough, and she says, you are enough, keep pushing, I'm learning too. And, and I found it interesting because what you've described here strikes me as some, something that's exceptional, something special that we need more of, but that we don't have now. And so I don't know how we create those spaces for those that really want to, those who are, are desirous, desperate to have the kind of experience that your children have had, that they can be connected to artifacts, to community stories, to the land, so they can have those connections. But when they ask for it or when they approach those things are confronted with criticism, how do we create those spaces to help those kinds of Latinos? Um, well, I'll start with my own experience of when... Um, I came to the States and, and my intention was to learn English. And um, I talked about fear earlier. <clears throat> and I think that's very connected to our identity of, of, where we, of everything about us. And um, stepping out of the fear, it's really, really crucial. Because um, I think that if you don't, then it'll hunt you for the rest of your life. In my own experience also, Humor has played a huge role. I think that uh, we need we need to be humorous about the mistakes that we make, and you know, las metidas de pata que he hecho. You know, when I when I said the wrong things, and um, but that's just part of it, you know. And so, but again, you know, it goes it, it's tied up, and um, it's interesting because my eighty two year old uh, mother in law lives with us. She has always lived with us since we got married with Walter. And uh, 
when she started criticizing my kids for not speaking well and having that accent, y que no sabes hablar bien, es que no se dice así. And, and then also adding the Salvadorian words that my kids were like, ¿qué está diciendo mi abuelita? You know, like, what is she saying? And, um, and so I have always just told my kids, just be yourself, you know? I mean, you know, it's, and it starts even with their names, you know? My kids are, uh, he, my first one is Kevin, and then Daniel, and then Nina. And uh, um, when we named them, we specifically thought, how is this going to affect their lives? You know, because um, is it when you name somebody Joshua, but then you call him Josue, it's like, well, is that, is, is that really his name kind of thing, you know? And so... Um, in creating those safe spaces, I, I think that fear and humor for me have played a huge role um, to get off that fear and, and laugh at yourself. Ríete de ti mismo, you know, de tus propias cosas que dices. And with our kids, that has been key for our family. Uh, for my job here at CHED, my serving here at CHED, I think it has been validating people, um, you know, that it's okay you know, to make mistakes, that it's, that it's fine, you know, that it's, it, it's going to happen, you know. Um, but I always tell my stories. And when I started uh, learning English, I had an amazing teacher who, beside the regular class, she taught me phonetics. And I still have an accent sometimes, but, um, but I think going beyond that, you know, it's phonetics was really the key for me to, to, to change that. But my husband still struggles with that at times. Um, he's always asking me to read his emails before he sends them out sometimes, you know, and, and he doesn't, um, so he struggles with that. And so um, just your own security about that, you know, and, and to not be afraid of making mistakes, um, um, but then listening to each other and validating each other. So um, for my kids, you know, it goes both ways because we're always teaching my husband and my husband's always teaching them. So it's, is that sense of, of going back and forth and, and knowing that um, in, in, in your goal-making processes, um, making a mistakes is part of reaching them. It's, it's not a failure. It's part of reaching your goals. So that would be for me. Everybody goes through that journey differently, and it has to do with, you know, who's around us and what's around us and the kind of influences and so forth that are there. I think that you're right about the fear piece. <clears throat> There's a big part that fear plays, um, and it's fear of shame, right? It's fear of shame and being considered a failure, because that's really, you know, what we're being told is that uh, being not good enough means that, you know, we're a failure. Um, people try to make up for that in different ways. People have different levels of resiliency. That resiliency has to do with uh, what are the strengths uh, that you have as a person, but also it has to do with um, who are the voices that are life-giving uh, for you or not. Um, and so if you don't have those life-giving voices, <clears throat> what happens is that you, um, you feel like you can't belong that there are barriers to belonging. And that's a very agonic piece, yeah? to fear barriers to belonging. Uh, that's very agonic. Um, and that leaves a person kind of feeling lost. That leaves a person with a sense of anger. That leaves a person with a sense of depression, right? There's a sense of being lost. 
Um, there's what's called interstitial places, uh, which means that um, those are places in between. And we have to begin to think about and talk about uh, those in-between spaces, uh, that we are peoples who have the power to live in in-between spaces. And the interstitial places, it's, you know, in, in, in medicine, it's, it's aware from medicine. What happens is that those are the spaces that have, that are connective tissue. And you cannot have a system in the body that works without the connective tissue that brings together the different organs that will create that system and make it work. And what I'm realizing is that those of us who are uh, in those spaces in our identity, we need to understand that we have a, a power that nobody else has. Those of us who live in those in-between spaces have the power to bring together the many different sides. We see things that other people cannot see. <clears throat> and our sense of belonging, as much as it feels like it's a difficult space, sometimes we need to uh, make peace with what it means to be in that in-between space. We need to begin to really talk about what that in-between space is. That the ideal space is not to be in one um, place where a culture was, is not to be here where we are in the dominant culture because you know now we can function and, and be successful here, but that the space where we are is a very powerful one because we are in between. That there's a work to be done there. That there is a calling in that uh, interstitial place. And that's uh, a very, very powerful place. But it's also um, a place of suffering, right? As I mentioned, uh, it's, a, it's a place of, of suffering. And um, that is, I was speaking with uh, Las Mujeres en Teología. Um, we missed you, Karen. But that's exactly what we were talking about the last time is we were talking about being in that in-between space. So we need to talk more about that space. Uh, those of us who have found our belonging in that space, we need to talk more about that space. There's a richness to it uh, that we haven't fully brought out. It's our mestizaje, right? It's our new mestizaje. Not the original mestizaje that produced Latinos, but the new mestizaje that's producing that's being produced as Latin Americans reconnect to their their origins, reconnect to their stories, their lands, their people. And and I think as Elizabeth you pointed out, that comes at a cost, but it comes with a gift. And I think that that's an important part to, to recognize, that it's both price and gift at once. And, and I think that's beautiful. I had an African-American friend of mine in my time in Bible college and seminary. I'll never forget what he said. Uh, we were talking about the, the feeling, the, the dissonance that we were experiencing because we had moved so far away from our families to come get the education we were getting. And, and I was saying that often I felt like I was becoming somehow less Latino and I was worried about it. And he challenged me and he said, no, 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 no. You're no less Puerto Rican. You're just more of something else now too. And I'll never forget that phrase. I thought it really described this idea of it comes at a cost, 
but it provides a gift, one that helps us to be interstitial. I like that phrase, one that helps us to stand in the in-between to help give shape to those new communities that are being born as cultures meet and encounter one another. And I think that also takes you then to <clears throat> to be in the church because um, then it becomes a real thing. And um, I've had this, I just took an ethics class and uh, in that class, um, I'll share a little bit about my own experience with my brother who was murdered a few years ago, 16 years ago, almost 17. And it has never become so evident in my life that um, the mass incarceration is of course a systemic issue, but to step outside of that, you know, and um, I don't know how relevant this is, but in my storytelling, I've been telling my kids about this, you know, that um, I was always taught that divine justice will do, but there's something else that we can do. And it's not just about uh, who's the victim here and who, but then who also places that fear on you. Um, And I think that's reconciliation, you know. I, I've asked myself, where is this person that took my brother's life, you know, and I want to hear his story. You know, what took him to that moment of deciding to take somebody else's life? Um, not to judge him because, you know, the law will take care of that, but just to hear his story and to, you know, and for some people that I've shared this, they're like, that's loca, you know. You know, you're stepping into places where you don't want to. Go. And I go, I want to. Because I think that not only me, um, I want to have that, you know, reconciliation with him and I want him to, to enjoy heaven as well, you know. Um, but there's a place where he came from and there are so many people um, in those places right now that are, don't have that opportunity to be heard uh, because there's a system, because there's something stopping them from, from, you know, knowing who God wanted them to be originally. And killing somebody changes your story forever, right? It changes you. You have to live with that. And we don't hear those stories a great deal. Uh, But my ministry with persons who have been incarcerated and particularly for murder, it changes who you are uh, because you were not made to take a life. And when you do, it changes your story. No matter how tough you try to look on the outside or what have you, it it does change who you are. And being able to connect uh, once again with that moment is, uh, it was a traumatic moment for him to take a life. And so uh, being able to reconnect to that moment and to hear um, uh, that there is a, a redemptive uh, moment for that is is uh, very, very powerful. You're right, Karen. Karen, thank you for sharing that part of your story. That, uh, That is a somber note, but I want to leave us with this quote that you said earlier. You said the distance between the distance between one person and another is a story. And I think we need to tell those stories as we connect to our cultures, as we connect to the suffering, as we connect to the violence of our cities, Compton, Chicago, uh, New York and others. Right. As our mestizos, our children, as they start integrating and ministering and living life in the grand cities of the world. Uh, Our prayer, right, is that they would tell their stories, share their testimonies, that they would share the testimony and good news of the grand story of Jesus, and that they would make connections between those two so that they can change the story of a city. Karen, 
Thank you so much for being with us. We want to honor your time. Uh, we want to thank you so much for giving us the privilege of telling your story and, and the work that you do in Chet, at Chet. And uh, we're hoping to share this with the world as a resource that others might be energized to do as you do. So thank you so much for doing that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Continue doing theology. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> Amen. No, just thank you for the opportunity and uh, just look forward to keep learning together. It was a gift. Well, many blessings to you, and we'll talk again soon. Alrighty. Alright. God bless. Dios les bendiga. Igual. Bueno, mi gente, that's the end of another classic episode of the Mestizo Podcast. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, leave us a review, and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website following the link in the show notes. Or call 312-725-2995. Translation, 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, and question, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Bueno, tato, that's it. Bendiciones.